This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened, I'm okay, other people have it worse, it doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There were nine cities uh, in the U.S. where HIV infection was the leading cause of death among women 25 to 44. Now, they tend to be a little bit more concentrated in the northeast cities, although this epidemic, um, although based on this data, is concentrated in in the large metropolitan areas, has been spreading out. Among young men uh, 25 to 44, we looked at all cities that had at least 100,000 population. And there were 170 of these cities. 64 of them, or 36%, HIV infection was the leading cause of death. I think we have done a good job in the first year of this administration. If you measure good job in terms of organizing ourselves properly, funding the effort more adequately, identifying some of the major problems in the bureaucracy and going after them. The purpose of this day is to remind us that our attitudes, behavior, and passion should be revved up in the other 364 days of the year. You're so concerned about AIDS. Where's the Manhattan Project on AIDS that you promised during your campaign? One year, lots of talk, no action. It's always a shock when a young person dies, but to have thousands of them dying at once, falling ill seemingly at random, only in very distinct communities. The AIDS epidemic was nothing short of a historic public health crisis. And yet, for over a decade, the United States government did absolutely nothing about it. It begs the question, 
What in the world happened? Was this simply a case of unfathomable government incompetence? Or was it something more sinister? Welcome to Conspiracy Theories on the Paracast Network. Every Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you are listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Conspiracy Theories, as well as all of Parcast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. Today, we're talking about the HIV-AIDS epidemic, where it came from, how it spread, and where the research stands in 2019. Last week, we covered the official story, the one that the U.S. government sticks with and most scientists corroborate. Scientists have concluded that HIV was born in Africa and crossed from chimpanzees to humans, likely through the consumption of bushmeat. Haiti, in particular, saw many cases of infection. HIV likely started to take hold in the United States around 1971, when a Haitian blood collecting company called Hemo Caribbean failed to follow proper collection procedure and shipped HIV-infected blood to blood banks in New York. At the same time, Haiti was a popular sex tourism destination, and HIV may have been spread to gay American men that slept with infected sex workers. HIV mainly spreads through blood and sexual fluids, so the most commonly affected populations in the 1970s became known as the four H's, Haitians, hemophiliacs, heroin users, and homosexuals. It's easy to leave the story here, but it only takes about a second of thought before things start to look a little bit off. By 1982, nearly 1,000 people had died from AIDS and President Ronald Reagan still hadn't said a word about the disease. It wasn't until 1985 that the government set aside federal funds to research the problem. By then, 420,000 people were living with HIV or AIDS. Something was going on within the government and within the media. Something that drastically delayed the search for a cure for HIV, as well as the whole of America. That something was called homophobia and racism. Undoubtedly. The question is whether the death toll of the AIDS epidemic was an unforeseen consequence of that prejudice, or whether overt actions were taken to intentionally harm specific groups of people. Genocide with the help of biological weapons. Today, we'll be looking at three conspiracy theories. Number one, gay leadership suppressed the response to HIV AIDS in an attempt to keep their community's name clean. 
The so-called gay plague was the last thing they needed in the fight for public acceptance. Conspiracy theory number two, HIV AIDS was not the result of government complacency, but rather an overt government effort to cull worldwide overpopulation. And conspiracy theory number three, officially, while HIV can be managed, there is no permanent cure, but some believe there is a cure for those who are wealthy and powerful enough to get it. Conspiracy theory number one, which focuses on attempts to silence the AIDS epidemic from within the gay community, seems surprising at first. But it begins to make sense when you examine the difficulties the LGBTQ community was facing in the 1970s and 80s. Well, throughout the 20th century, it was hard for politicians to advocate for the LGBTQ community without being targeted by homophobic smear campaigns. The first openly gay elected official, San Francisco Board of Supervisors member Harvey Milk, wasn't elected until 1977. In the 80s, there were only two openly gay elected officials in the federal government, both of whom were outed as a result of sex scandals. Needless to say, if you were an out politician, there was intense pressure to blend in and keep your personal life out of the political crosshairs, perhaps at the expense of focusing on issues that affected the LGBTQ community. Randy Schiltz argued in his 1987 book, And the Band Played On, that gay leaders in the government, media, and activist community purposely helped suppress awareness of HIV in order to limit bad PR. By the late 70s, the gay community was getting their first taste of acceptance, maybe even mainstream acceptance. In 1970, New York held its first pride parade to mark the one-year anniversary of the Stonewall Riots. In the next decade, dozens of major cities, from Chicago to Boston to San Francisco, followed suit. And then, AIDS hit, and the entire political sphere backed off completely. By the early 90s, AIDS was even being used as a justification for discrimination, including barring gay members from the military. Here's Colonel John Ripley in 1993. We know they have hundreds of sexual partners during their lifetime, and they continue to engage in male-to-male sex, not using condoms, with no thought of the spread of the disease. In the midst of this stigma, AIDS was neglected by President Ronald Reagan, neglected by politicians running for office, and, according to Randy Schiltz, neglected by some prominent leaders in the gay community. This isn't to say the gay community was ignoring the massive health issue they had on their hands. Here's a report from 1990. Several hundred people chanted slogans aimed at protesting the Immigration Service's policy barring AIDS-positive foreigners from entering the U.S. Several members of an affinity group called Avowed Homosexuals jumped over police barriers and dashed for the entrance of the federal building. They were quickly thrown to the ground and arrested. At times, protesters left the blocked-off route of march. The effect was to tie up traffic for blocks in every direction. Brian Bland, San Francisco. Throughout the 80s and 90s, protests sprung up in cities around the world. Activists like Larry Kramer pressured the government into responding. Nothing is any different. What kind of inhumanity is this? This is yet another president and yet another health secretary 
who do not care about AIDS. Someone had to because the people in power weren't. As far as we know, there were no secret meetings between a cabal of gay leaders conspiring to leave AIDS unaddressed. But accounts like And the Band Played On give us an idea of the secretive, stigma-ridden environment that may have led to the AIDS crisis being pushed under the rug. As we mentioned, in the late 70s, LGBTQ people, activists, and culture were becoming more visible. A sexual revolution had taken place over the past decade, and even if mainstream acceptance was a ways away, there were at least vibrant communities in places like San Francisco and New York City. But the threat of HIV put that sexual revolution on hold. In 1980, New York's most prominent gay doctor, Dan William, declared that gay bathhouses, which were essentially sex clubs, were dangerous. He suggested that warning signs should be posted outside to warn visitors about the risks of unprotected sex. This was met with huge backlash from the gay community. Dr. William was derided as a monogamist and criticized for stirring panic. You and I may think, what's the big deal? It's obvious that having unprotected sex with random strangers is a bad idea. But... In the early days of the AIDS epidemic, there was very little education about safe sex, especially within the LGBTQ community. Even though Dr. William had science on his side, to most of the public, he was trying to turn back the clock on the sexual freedom the gay community had fought so hard to secure. In the mid-80s, Bill Krauss, the leader of the Harvey Milk Democratic Club in San Francisco, created a safe sex campaign to educate the community on the dangers of unprotected sex. The campaign included an effort to close gay bathhouses, which, once again, was met with criticism. He was even called a sexual Nazi for trying to police people's personal lives. Clearly, a certain segment of the gay community was devoted to keeping their hookup spots open and squashing rumors that the gay community was overrun with disease. The question is, was this a case of simple ignorance or a deliberate effort to ignore the deadly STD that was coursing through the population? For my part, I'm leaning towards the latter. It's hard to understand why anyone would sabotage the effort to stop a deadly epidemic that was targeting their own community. We might find some answers to that question by looking at a similar case that occurred in 1983, when the FDA recommended that gay men could not donate blood. An activist group called the National Gay Task Force protested at the front door of the New York Blood Center. The group was upset at the implication that all gay men have AIDS. Fair enough. New York's gay community had a long and active history of volunteering with the New York Blood Center. Being suddenly barred from donating blood would have felt like a slap in the face. Furthermore, this was only one example of the stigma gay men faced during the AIDS epidemic. Since there was so much misinformation about how HIV spread, even healthy gay men were stereotyped as disease-ridden degenerates and treated more or less as untouchables. In 1990, the ACLU documented the discrimination. 
The American Civil Liberties Union says legal and advocacy groups around the country received 13,000 complaints of AIDS-related discrimination between 1983 and 1988. 30% of those complaints were from people who don't even have the disease. Fear of AIDS is so widespread, people reported experiencing discrimination simply because they are gay, have friends or relatives with AIDS, or care for people with AIDS. One example was a California man who was refused dental treatment simply because his brother had recently died of the disease. Beth Harpaz, New York. But Randy Schiltz argued these protesters at the New York Blood Center knew fully well that gay men were, as the FDA pointed out, at an abnormally high risk for hepatitis B and AIDS. Disassociating themselves from the stigma of HIV was apparently more important to the task force than actually preventing the spread of the virus. Even more, by distancing the gay community from HIV-AIDS, advocacy groups were effectively diverting research funding and resources away from the demographic that needed it most. This still isn't enough to prove intent, but purposely or not, the National Gay Task Force's blood bank protests may have possibly had negative consequences. We've looked at the complicated response to the AIDS epidemic within the LGBTQ activist community, but we also need to talk about the political side. For all the efforts to distance AIDS from the gay community, the two issues were still inextricably linked in the public consciousness. For politicians who didn't want to be linked to that stigma, the safest option was to do nothing. New York City's Mayor Ed Koch was the subject of many a gay rumor due to his long stint of bachelorhood. There wasn't a vast amount of evidence to support those rumors, but the gossip still managed to stick to Koch's image. In 1977, Mario Cuomo ran against Koch in the primary for governor. Flyers were plastered around New York City with the offensive tagline, quote, vote for Cuomo, not the homo, end quote. The Cuomo campaign denied any involvement in the posters, but regardless of who was to blame, Koch felt the need to distance himself from the dirty campaigning by distancing himself from LGBTQ issues. In turn, gay voters actually began to show up for Cuomo. Compared to Koch's absolute silence on LGBTQ issues, Cuomo seemed like the safer choice. This story is representative of the odd dilemma gay politicians and voters faced. Homophobia clung so negatively to political campaigns that even if politicians did want to give attention to AIDS, they were too afraid of the backlash to take any action. This was especially true for politicians who actually were gay, including the five then-closeted gay representatives serving in the U.S. Congress throughout the 80s none of whom ever sponsored a bill regarding HIV-AIDS. Openly gay representative Jerry Studs, for his part, did campaign for increased AIDS funding in the late 80s. Were some gay political leaders ignoring the AIDS crisis at the risk of contributing to its devastating death toll? Well, yes. But we need to be careful not to treat all LGBTQ individuals as a monolith. The quote-unquote gay community doesn't hand out membership cards and hold monthly agenda-setting meetings. That sort of stereotyping and pigeonholing is exactly what these leaders were trying to avoid. It's a logical fallacy, and a dangerous one, to assume these politicians were conspiring together simply because they shared the same sexuality. 
It seems like the hushing up of the AIDS epidemic was more of a side effect of institutional homophobia than a malicious act of its own. There's no hard evidence of any organized attempt to bury the connection between HIV AIDS and the gay community. Rather, it was downplayed by many gay activists because of ignorance and misinformation, and it was ignored by politicians who were afraid of the stigma. I'll give this theory a 6 out of 10. What happened was more circumstantial than purposeful, but at the end of the day, it did still lead to the same public health crisis. It's undeniable that AIDS was pushed aside, whether it be from ignorance, fear, or malicious prejudice. But is there any proof that the government purposely engineered HIV to harm gay and black populations on purpose? Coming up, we'll dive into conspiracy theory number two. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Now back to the story. Biological warfare has, in some shape or form, been around ever since humans began to travel the globe. History is filled with stories of explorers and colonizers infecting other populations with deadly viruses, either advertently or inadvertently. Our second conspiracy theory holds that the U.S. government intentionally created and spread HIV as a method of biowarfare and genocide spurred on by racism, homophobia, and most of all, fear of overpopulation. Dr. Leonard Horowitz is a key voice in this conspiracy theory. His 1996 book, Emerging Viruses, AIDS and Ebola, Nature, Accident, or Intentional, lays out an alternate history of the spread of AIDS. Dr. Horowitz is a polarizing figure, and we don't necessarily endorse the views we're about to present, but for the purposes of this episode, we do feel it's necessary to examine his claims with an objective and critical eye. As Dr. Horowitz notes, the United States government and the World Health Organization have invested millions of dollars in developing and researching biological weapons. Although the first Geneva Protocol, which banned germ or biological warfare, was signed in 1925, the U.S. began its own biological weapons research program in 1943. This program was officially ended in 1969 under the newly elected president, Richard Nixon. However, in post-Watergate investigations into Nixon's administration, it became clear that he wasn't entirely forthcoming about the issue. Biological weapon research was allowed to continue after 1969 in order to develop vaccines, to prepare defenses for a potential biological attack, or to be used in covert operations. In 1969, a request was made by the Department of Defense for $10 million to develop immune system suppressing viruses similar to HIV. This is a fact that doesn't go unnoticed. In 1996, Nation of Islam leader Louis Farrakhan pointed it out at a rally in New York. Those responsible for 
biological warfare came before the Senate Appropriations Committee demanding and receiving $10 million to develop a virus that would cause cancer and break down the immune system. Thus, AIDS was born, a conspiracy against humanity. In Dr. Horowitz's opinion, the proven development of bioweapons during the mid-20th century gave the U.S. government the means to create and spread a virus like HIV. Fear of overpopulation gave them the motive. In 1969, Richard Nixon was the president and Henry Kissinger, the U.S. national security advisor, was his right-hand man. A goal of Nixon's presidency was to slow population growth. The U.S. population nearly doubled from 1940 to 1980, and halfway through the boom, the government worried that the country's infrastructure couldn't support all of its citizens. In Nixon's 1969 message about population control, he focused on supporting the population rather than stifling it. Domestically, this included making family planning resources available to all, putting new systems in place to support the growing population, and researching how to protect the world's limited resources and prevent food shortages. It seems that if he had any aggressive plan to cull the world population, he was keeping it quiet. It is interesting to note that this overpopulation speech came in the same year as the DOD's request to research HIV-like immune system-suppressing viruses. Coincidence? Probably. Nixon wasn't the only one worried about overpopulation. In 1969, the World Bank presented research showing that while the growing U.S. population might be worrisome, developing countries were at an even higher risk of overpopulation. While the U.S. government was working on the 1970 Title X Family Planning Program, which made family planning services widely available, the World Bank was putting together similar programs in countries across the globe. Also in 1970, the World Health Organization made a surprising discovery. They found it was possible to create targeted viruses designed to only affect people with certain DNA sequences or specific genotypes. If we know anything about the AIDS epidemic, we know that it disproportionately affected gay and black populations. Yes, but that wasn't due to the properties of the virus on a scientific level. HIV is biologically capable of affecting anyone equally. Okay, that argument falls apart under scrutiny, but we still have overpopulation, bioweapons, and the knowledge that these weapons can potentially be targeted towards specific demographics. What's more, we have Henry Kissinger, who, in addition to overseeing the overpopulation and bioweapon efforts, also reviewed all covert operations by the U.S. These included CIA operations in Zaire, where AIDS originated. We don't know the details of these covert operations in Africa because, well, they're covert. But we do know that the U.S. military worked with one research contractor named Robert Gallo. That's the same Robert Gallo who discovered HIV in 1983. At the end of the day, everything we've laid out could just be coincidence. The first key bit of evidence for the conspiracy theory takes us back to American researcher Robert Gallo and French researcher Luc Montagnier. 
As the official story tells it, two separate labs, led by Gallo and Montagnier respectively, simultaneously discovered AIDS in 1983. But Dr. Horowitz argued that, given what's known about Gallo's research, he realistically could have synthesized an HIV virus years before AIDS first appeared in 1971. Let's take a ride through Gallo's resume. Beginning in 1968, he worked with a company called Lytton Bionetics, which in turn was linked with a military contracting firm, which was overseen by Henry Kissinger. Before he was famous for discovering HIV, Gallo's work was to engineer monkey viruses to cause cancers, cancers like Kaposi's sarcoma, a common symptom in AIDS patients. Gallo didn't just focus on cancers, but also similar diseases that would slowly deteriorate human health until death, just as AIDS does. Horowitz believes that by engineering viruses from a variety of animals, Gallo would have been able to produce one virus that was capable of causing many of the symptoms of AIDS. We also know that in 1970, Gallo was actively sharing research in this vein with the military, as his company worked with a military firm. Maybe this is why Gallo was the go-to researcher when AIDS first appeared in the U.S. Or maybe he already knew about the disease. Perhaps he was even the one who created the HIV virus to help the U.S. government with its overpopulation problem. This theory basically hinges on the assumption that Nixon's population control initiatives, the U.S. military's biological weapon research, and the CIA's covert operations in Central Africa were all connected. But the only link connecting them is Henry Kissinger, who, as national security advisor, was necessarily involved in overseeing all three. We're drawing a lot of conclusions based on pretty flimsy evidence. But the story isn't quite over. The crux of this theory lies in Kissinger's links to Merck, Sharp, and Dome, a drug company known for its hepatitis B vaccine and for being the world's largest supplier of AIDS-related drugs. Under Kissinger's orders, U.S. aid funds were directed to Merck's hepatitis B vaccine studies in the early 1970s. These studies were conducted in Central Africa, where we later saw AIDS first break out. Merck also tested their experimental hepatitis B vaccines on volunteers at the New York City Blood Bank, most of whom were, you guessed it, gay men. This all started in around 1969, when Nixon took office and Kissinger took over national security, and just a couple years before AIDS first appeared. Before testing began on these first few volunteers, Merck's vaccines had only been tested on monkeys, and the vaccines themselves had been grown in chimpanzees. As we mentioned last week, HIV was passed over to humans from chimpanzees, presumably through the eating of bushmeat. Or perhaps from contaminated vaccines. We do know that Merck's vaccines were contaminated, if not with HIV, then at least with other monkey viruses. Maurice Hilleman, who was in charge of the hepatitis B vaccine experiments, admitted in the mid-1980s that AIDS-infected monkeys were brought to the U.S. as part of Merck's vaccine experiments in around 1970. The polio and later hepatitis B vaccines coming out of Hilleman's lab were, in fact, contaminated with a simian virus that's known to cause cancer in certain animals. 
We covered this controversy in depth in our previous Conspiracy Theories episode on vaccines. If you want to hear the whole story, give it a listen. But for our purposes today, the takeaway was that the simian virus in those contaminated vaccines, SV40, was proven not to cause an increased risk of cancer in humans. But if viruses had been passed from the AIDS-infected test monkeys in the same manner, it'd be a different story entirely. It would also affect how we view the U.S. government's push for immunization in the 1970s. It was the opinion of government scientists that there needed to be stronger vaccination practices in developing countries as diseases were spreading more rapidly than in developed nations. This is a major reason why the U.S. Army and U.S. aid sent support to Merck's hepatitis B drug studies in Central Africa. If Dr. Horowitz is to be believed, these immunizations, which were contaminated with monkey viruses, spread AIDS throughout the African communities that were used as subjects for the vaccine study. That would be a scientific disaster of horrific proportions. Or it could have been exactly what the U.S. government intended. Overpopulation in developing countries was a major concern, wasn't it? One deadly, easily transmittable virus could solve the problem in an instant. At the same time, all across America, there were community-wide immunization efforts focused on neighborhoods with a higher rate of susceptibles, people who were less likely to have access to affordable health care and therefore less likely to be immunized. These populations tended to be non-white. Dr. Horowitz argued that this push to immunize non-white groups could have led to those groups being disproportionately affected by the HIV-contaminated vaccines, resulting in, essentially, a targeted genocide against Black Americans. Releasing a deadly virus into your own country is certainly one way to curtail overpopulation. Horowitz concludes that the militarization of medical care that is, immunization programs driven by U.S. intelligence and military interests rather than actual medical need, is problematic for public health and democracy. That's one part of this theory that seems hard to deny. But even if we did take it as a given that Merck's hepatitis B vaccine was contaminated with HIV, we still haven't answered the question of intention. It seems like a big leap to say that the U.S. government would turn to such drastic measures to solve a concern so disconnected from domestic affairs like overpopulation in Africa. The story's logic does sound convincing, but the official story of HIV-AIDS is just as convincing, and it doesn't rely on assumptions and shaky connections. I'd give this theory a 2 out of 10. I think it jumps to a lot of conclusions, but it does demonstrate that there will always be unanswered questions about how exactly AIDS became a global epidemic. The scientific establishment has drawn their own conclusions based on research and historical evidence, but it's also fully possible that the conspiracy theorists are right and contaminated vaccines and biological weapons programs were part of the picture. It's important to take this story for what it is and not force any undue conclusions. Yes, the military-medical-industrial complex is problematic, but some people use Horowitz's theory as a reason not to vaccinate themselves or their kids. Now, this is a dangerous leap that does more harm than good. 
we want to stress again that vaccines contaminated with AIDS is just a theory with no proof. Choosing not to get vaccinated or not to vaccinate your children should not be done lightly as it greatly increases the spread of deadly diseases like measles, hepatitis, and polio. Not vaccinating compromises herd immunity, which poses a serious danger to all humanity and opens the door for a public health crisis. We've laid out a few theories of how HIV AIDS came to be, but where are we today? Coming up, we'll look at our final conspiracy theory. Does a secret cure for AIDS exist? And if so, why is it being hidden from the public? Now, back to the story. Today, much of the fear and stigma that surrounds HIV AIDS is still prevalent. But in the past few decades, we've made major strides in both preventing and treating HIV. But there's still no permanent cure for the virus once it's been contracted. Or is there? Conspiracy theory number three contends that a cure for HIV AIDS exists and is being hidden from the public. Rumors allege that basketball star Magic Johnson, who some might see as today's most famous symbol for HIV, has access to the cure. The proof? He's healthy. Really healthy. And he has been for a long time. Moreover, his wife remains HIV negative after years of marriage. A cure for the rich and famous, not for the rest of us. Yet being healthy and having a healthy wife isn't proof that HIV has been cured. This theory is born of the continued misinformation about HIV AIDS. Today, the most common treatment for HIV is antiretroviral therapy. Created in 1996 and continually improved, it's changed the game for HIV patients and their partners. Chances of transmissions are vastly reduced and HIV can be suppressed more easily before it becomes AIDS. With the right medication, HIV can be manageable for decades and decades. Magic Johnson does have access to something most of the world doesn't, top-notch medical care and the money to afford it. In 2018, 23.7 million people were receiving antiretroviral treatment. That's only 59% of the 36.9 million people living with HIV worldwide. You may be tempted to point the finger at developing countries, but the U.S. actually has one of the worst rates of HIV treatment in the world. Of the 1.1 million people living with HIV in the United States, only 49% are virally suppressed. That's a lower rate than Zimbabwe, Kenya, and Malawi. The culprit is exceedingly high drug costs. In the U.S., the average cost of HIV treatment is $14,000 to $20,000 a year, and the gold standard antiretroviral treatment costs $39,000 annually. That same exact, top-of-the-line treatment costs $75 a year in Africa. Accessibility and affordability are huge issues that need to be addressed for HIV treatment as well as other conditions. But the problem is that these drugs are prohibitively expensive, not that they're being locked away in a secret government vault. For the sake of the argument, could there potentially be a full cure that Magic Johnson or anyone else with funds and prestige could buy? Short answer is no. Long answer is 
probably not. Only one person, Timothy Brown, otherwise known as the Berlin patient, has really been cured of HIV AIDS, and it simply isn't a procedure that would work on a widespread level. You see, medically speaking, there are two types of cures. Well, most people imagine a sterilizing cure, which would completely rid the HIV virus from the body. What's more likely to be found is a functional cure, which would not completely eradicate the virus from the patient's body, but would keep them in long-term remission without the continued use of antiretroviral drugs. Timothy Brown is an example of how a functional cure may work. Timothy was diagnosed as HIV positive in 1995. He was also suffering from leukemia. His immune system was doubly weakened, both by HIV and by the chemotherapy used to treat his cancer, so he could have easily died from something as simple as a common cold. In 2007, he underwent an experimental bone marrow transplant and received stem cells from a donor who had two copies of a genetic mutation called the CCR5 Delta 32. Wacky name, but it's actually a pretty cool mutation which enables people who possess it to resist HIV. The infusion of the bone marrow transplant from the CCR5 Delta 32 possessing donor left Timothy with vastly decreased HIV antibodies. For all intents and purposes, it appeared as if HIV had completely left his body. Since the transplant, biopsies have confirmed that Timothy continues to be more or less cured, back to normal, or what we call long-term remission. So there is a cure. There is a cure-ish. Bone marrow transplants are highly risky and could lead to death far more quickly than properly treated HIV. This isn't a widespread solution that HIV patients, Magic Johnson or not, would want to undergo. But the success of Timothy's transplant does show us that there are ways that a functional cure could be possible someday, or could even be in the works. I'm going to have to rate this theory a two out of 10. It seems to be born of rumors and misinformation about HIV treatment, an issue that needs to be spoken about more often. Education and activism are the best way to change the HIV AIDS narrative and sort the rumors from the realities. So let's try and cut through the rumors and determine the truth. I'm ready to dismiss theories two and three completely. There just isn't enough evidence for either. Agreed. Well, theory number one regarding gay leaders covering up the AIDS epidemic makes the most sense to me, but even then, it seems like more of a tragic mistake magnified by homophobia present in society at large than an intentional conspiracy. The official story seems to be the truth. Cultural stigma and government inaction played a massive part in how HIV AIDS spread. Since the epidemic was handled so incompetently, it's no surprise that so many people believe the government was intentionally out to harm them. In fact, a 1999 door-to-door -door study found that over a quarter of black California residents believed HIV AIDS was a, quote, man-made virus that the federal government made to kill and wipe out black people, end quote. And a further 23% were unsure. The tragic part is that the people surveyed who believed in HIV AIDS conspiracy theories were also less likely to practice safe sex or take steps to prevent STDs. 
Those conspiracy beliefs can breed cynicism and a sense of helplessness that discourages people from making the effort to protect themselves. This is a case where conspiracy theories can have real and devastating consequences. Whatever you believe, the lesson here is to get tested, stay informed, and talk openly about HIV AIDS. Hopefully, we'll all learn from the past and prevent another deadly epidemic from spreading. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back Wednesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Conspiracy Theories, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. Conspiracy Theories is written by Andrew M. Henderson and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy.